TheWellnessCouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Sit back, light the fire, kick your shoes off, because it's time for That Paleo Show with your favorite caveman, Brett Hill. Hey everyone, um, do you have life insurance? If not, it's probably something you should be thinking about because um, it's a really important topic and something people often overlook. But you know, one of the things I found when I went in to get life insurance is I started looking at all the stuff that was covered and how much I was getting charged for life insurance and it made me start to wonder whether the amount I was paying for my life insurance was subsidizing the unhealthy lifestyles of the average person around me. And now there's this really cool insurance broker in America called Health IQ. But if you're one of our American listeners, I definitely reckon you should check out. So Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for health-conscious people like listeners for that paleo show. That includes runners, cyclists, strength trainers, and more. With the majority of Health IQ customers saving between 4 and 33% on their life insurance, which is amazing. So if you're an American listener, see if you qualify and get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paleo. Or mention the promo code PALIO when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Welcome to That Paleo Show, making the paleo lifestyle easy and accessible for everyone. I'm Dr. Brett Hill, and this week we're welcoming back uh, a favorite guest to the show, Dr. Thomas Cowan, MD. He was last on uh, That Paleo Show about episode 180, which was a little over a year ago, um, and before his most recent book, all about the heart came out. So um, he opened a medical practice in 1985 uh, and has studied Rudolf Steiner's philosophies. He's studied the practices of traditional people. He's been very big in the Western A. Price Foundation, but is also interested in homeopathy, herbology, many other disciplines, which we're going to talk about today. So welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you. Thank you for talking to me again. Uh, it's great to have you back on board, mate, and it's it's probably a great time to talk to someone like yourself, particularly here in Australia. There's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of conflict going on, and a lot of uh, restrictions being placed on, I guess, people's ability to refer and, and to get health fund coverage for things like homeopathy and herb herbology and things like that over here. Um, so it's an important time to get people talking about these topics and and why they're important and how they can help. Yes, I agree. So, um, you've written a new book that's all about the heart, Tom, so we thought it'd be great to have a little bit of a chat about that, Human Heart, Cosmic Heart. What made you decide to write this book, Tom? Well, there's sort of three sections of the book. Um, One is uh, my story and my run-in with some heart issues, uh, and um, I'll just say that's probably not going to talk much more about that. Uh, the the other two issues, the two biggies, were um, uh, the first one was my, I was making my case that the idea that the heart pumps the blood around the body, in other words, the reason the blood moves in the body is because it's pushed by the heart, is basically nonsense and there's a whole nother way that the blood moves and there's a whole nother way of looking at what the heart does. So that was the second part. Yeah. And the third, third part, which I think we should probably talk about today because even though that part is pretty interesting, but the third part, because uh, there was some very interesting stuff around this just published in the last few weeks is 
uh, in conventional cardiology, there's only considered to be one reason why people have heart attacks, and that's because they have a blocked artery to that part of their heart. Yeah. And I wanted to uh, basically shine a light on that theory and to show that while blocked arteries or plaque buildup in the coronary arteries has some effect, and I'm not saying it's not irrelevant, it actually only accounts for approximately 20% of heart attacks, which of course means that 80% of heart attacks, which is, you know, of course, most heart attacks have some other reason why the people had a heart attack. And the reason that's so important is your general cardiologist doesn't say anything about that to the patients. They say you've got uh, blocked arteries, so we're going to fix them or prevent them somehow. That's the whole shebang, and it's just not true. So let's talk about some of these other reasons, Thomas, because this will be absolutely news to most people listening in who I'm sure have, um, you know, who've had heart issues or, you know, just about everyone has either had heart issues or knows someone who's had heart issues because it is so prevalent. And they would have all heard that same story about the blocked arteries. So, uh, and to say that's only 20%, I mean, that, that just by nature of saying that suggests that perhaps 80% of people are getting possibly misdiagnosed or, or could, you know, there, there's possibly more information they could find out about this in order to, uh, to prevent and to treat their heart issues as well. Right. I mean, the, the point is, though, it's not that they don't have heart issues. They do. And they, it's not that they don't have heart attacks. They do. It's just that, so for instance, there's a website called heartattacknew.com. I would encourage all your listeners to go to that. And for those of you who are uh, what I call gluttons for scientific punishment, who want to read a 200-page treatise on this subject, there at the bottom of that, there's a print version, and there's a pathologist named Baroldi, Italian, who did autopsies on people who died of heart attacks for 40 years and reviewed basically all the literature uh, that's pretty much ever been published on people who've had heart attacks. And he says quite clearly that his numbers show 41% of people who have a heart attack have a blocked artery. And of those, half of the blockages came after the heart attack, not before. So that's where I got this 20% number for, uh, from. The, the reason that's also relevant today more than it was a month ago was and if I could just put this into context a little bit, the two main treatments in at least the United States uh, for blocked arteries have been uh, bypasses and stents. And let's just look at stents. Stents are pierced person has chest pain. They go to the cardiologist. He does an angiogram where he puts dye in. He says you have a blockage. He puts a, a sort of a roto-rooter in there, undoes the blockage, puts a stent or a sleeve in there to keep the artery from closing, and then he's, quote, cured you of heart disease. So in a, in a 2004 uh, study called the Courage Study published in the New England Journal, I could read the quote from the conclusion, but this study absolutely demonstrated that putting stents in or doing bypass does not, A, um, 
increase the length of time that a person would live, and B, it does not prevent them from having a heart attack, which, of course, are the two main reasons people do them. But they said the third reason to do them, which is that it prevents people from having angina or chest pain, that they do. So ever since 2004, we've been telling people, well, you could have a stent or a bypass to unblock your arteries. And by the way, the approximate cost for doing stents in the United States per year is about $50 billion. So this is not an insignificant procedure. In fact, it's the main financial support for most of the hospitals, as far as I can tell. Um, So we could tell people it will get rid of your chest pain, but it won't stop you from having a heart attack and it won't make you live longer. Well, last week or two weeks ago now in The Lancet, one of the biggest medical journals in the world, for the first time ever, they did a double blind study of stents. So they took people with chest pain, they did an angiogram on them, they found the people with a blockage. In half of them, they put a stent in And the other half, they didn't put a stent in. They just took the catheter out and they told the people, we put a stent in and fixed your heart. You should be fine. Hmm. But in fact, they didn't. That was considered unethical because after all, why would you do that? But it afforded them the chance to see what would happen to these people. Eight weeks later, there was no difference in cardiac function and there was no difference in chest pain between the groups that they put the stent in and the people that they didn't. Which meant uh, the final rationale for putting a stent in, which is to relieve chest pain, turns out is no better than a placebo. Um, how is it that we've gotten to this this far without a double-blind study being done? I mean, it, it seems strange. I mean, as I said before, there's been so much, uh, you know, this real push for evidence-based medicine at the moment, um, and particularly when we're looking at, you know, natural and alternative therapies to say, well, if you haven't got these high-level studies, then you can't do it, you can't promote it, you can't, um, you know, get, get a health fund rebates for it, all this sort of stuff. But it seems like something like a stent which has been around for so long, how, how has that not ever had a double-blind study done before? I don't know. It's a good question. <laughs> uh, because, I mean, you know, it's like I think it was Will Rogers or somebody said, never try to convince somebody of something that they make their living on. <laughs> so, you know, this is the backbone of, of the cardiologist practice. It's the backbone of of the reimbursement for the hospitals. And they said it was unethical to do this double blind study because look, the people have less pain after you do the stent. It turns out if you just stick a catheter in them and tell them that we fixed it, they have exactly the same amount of less pain. Why didn't they do that? I, you know, they don't wanna know. Did you know that physically active people have a 56% lower risk of heart disease, 20% lower risk of cancer, and 58% lower risk of diabetes? Well, you probably did, because when you're one of my smart listeners on that paleo show, but that's compared to people who are inactive. Don't you think it makes sense then that if you're physically active, you should pay less for your life insurance? Health IQ thinks so. Like saving money on your car insurance for being a good driver, Health IQ saves you money on your life insurance for living a health-conscious life. 
So if you're in the United States, see if you qualify and get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paleo. Or mention the promo code paleo when you talk to a Health IQ agent. Can we talk a little bit about what the if it's not um, the blockage of the arteries, you know, if it's not uh, if the stent isn't the solution to the problem, what is the problem? If it's not a blocked artery, what is causing these uh, heart issues? Right. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, I, I I just want what the first way I'm going to answer this, and I, I understand that what I'm about to say is a is provocative, but I think. Somebody told me that's my middle name. So, <laughs> uh, so the the New York Times ran this Lancet study, and I think in a headline and said the headline was "Stents are useless." And then another big magazine in the United States called the Atlantic did a uh, also a lead story on this. And one of the people they interviewed was one of the head cardiologists at UCSF, which is happens to be where I live. And I'm going to read you a quote from this uh, doctor called Dr. Mandrola. I don't know who she is, but anyways, quote, this study will begin to change the mindset of cardiologists and patients that focal blockages need to be fixed. Instead, these findings help doctors and patients understand that coronary artery disease is a diffuse systemic disease. A focal blockage is just one manifestation of a larger disease, end quote. Mm. I, I just want to repeat that, that coronary artery disease is a diffuse systemic disease. Now, when I wrote this book, I said, well, there is, there is plaque, there is coronary artery disease, but this is a, a systemic disease. In other words, it's a disease of the entire person. And I'll tell you in a minute what these at least three of the major components of that disease are. But the provocative part is this is the first time in my 35 years in medicine that I've ever heard a cardiologist say that that heart disease or coronary artery disease is a manifestation of some bigger picture. And so I would actually ask all your listeners who have heart disease, who have a cardiologist, to go in, bring the Atlantic article in and say, okay, what diffuse systemic disease do you think I have? I mean, is it high cholesterol, even though we know that that uh, actually doesn't predict heart disease, and the higher your cholesterol, the longer you live? Is it, what is it? And I can tell you, I don't think they'll have an answer. Now, my answer is there's many components of this, but the three biggies are, and this is what I wrote my book about. So one is an imbalance of the autonomic nervous system. So we have a two nervous systems, a central and an autonomic or, or automatic, so to speak, which is divided into the sympathetic and parasympathetic chains. The sympathetic is fight or flight and parasympathetic is rest and digest. And we know from heart rate variability testing that over 90% of the people who go on to have a heart attack have low parasympathetic tone in the days, weeks, and months before they have a heart attack. Mm. Now, this low parasympathetic tone, which means you're living a chronically stressful life, 
is happens because of diabetes. It happens because of insulin resistance. It happens because of being overweight. It happens because of smoking. It happens because of eating a low-fat, high-carb diet. It happens because of lack of exercise. It happens because of emotional, chronic stress, divorces, etc. So that's one component. Now, cardiology is aware of this because they use beta blockers, which block the sympathetic. But I would point out that the research clearly shows that it isn't an overactive sympathetic that causes heart attacks. It's a suppressed parasympathetic. And it's true those are similar, but they're not the same. And so um, the way to support that or prevent heart attacks is not to block the sympathetic, but a much better way is to support the parasympathetic. So that's reason number one. Reason number two is we're told that all the blood supply to the heart is through these three major coronary arteries. Mm. The reality is the blood supply to the heart, like any tissue or any organ, is a rich and varied network of fine capillaries that is much better design than just having three central passages for the blood to go. It's like a watershed instead of a river. And this is a much more redundant and, and sophisticated uh, structure than just relying on three major arteries. And so if the, blood, if the capillaries, if these collateral blood vessels are affected, inflamed, etc., you will have less blood flow through these small vessels and you'll have trouble with your heart. And you could then ask, well, what causes trouble in the microcirculation? And the answer is mostly diabetes or prediabetes or insulin resistant or eating a high carbohydrate, low fat diet. Also, smoking does that. And also chronic stress does that. Uh, Conventional cardiology is aware of this because they give Plavix and aspirin to improve the microcirculation, but uh, that's not the most effective strategy. The most effective strategy is to not have it in the first place, which means eating a proper heart-healthy diet. The third reason, and actually the biggest reason, is if there's things that affect mitochondrial energy generation, which include poisoning and heavy metals and vaccines and a whole lot of other things, and you get mitochondrial uh, de defects, then what happens is you shift your energy generation to the cytoplasm, and that builds up uh, lactic acid through a process called glycolysis. Now, that's the same process that happens in your leg. If you run too much, you build up lactic acid, and then you feel pain and cramps in your leg, and then your leg stops. And exactly the same thing happens in your heart. If your parasympathetic nervous system is weak, if your capillary blood flow is weak, then you, go, uh, you make this glycolytic shift, you build up lactic acid, and you have pain in your heart, which we call angina. The difference between why you don't have a leg attack and why you do have a heart attack is because your leg can stop, but your heart can't. So the lactic acid continues to build up, 
It affects the calcium getting into the muscle so the heart muscle can't move. That breaks off little pieces of clots, and eventually the tissue becomes necrotic, which is what we call a heart attack because of the buildup of acids in the tissue. And that, that process describes exactly what happens when people have angina or heart attacks uh, much better than any other description that I've ever heard. That's fascinating. That has just blown me away, I reckon, because that's a, that's a totally different description of how the heart works to, I guess, anything I've heard before, but at the same time, I have heard it all before in, the, in that, you know, when you talk about the, the rich uh, networks in the heart and, and the, you know, the capillaries and all that sort of stuff, it's, it's stuff that we know, but we just have, perhaps have never heard it described in that way. Right. And again, if you want to see it, you, you know, I always say to people, don't take my word for it. Go to heartattacknew.com, go to frequently asked questions, the riddle solution, and you will see what a normal blood supply to the heart looks like. And then the next question to ask is, why did your cardiologist draw it as just three arteries with no capillaries? Uh, so I don't know. You should ask him that. But my guess is because that was a way to try to convince you that all the blood flow must come from these three large vessels. I can tell you that nothing could be further from the truth and that your the integrity of your blood supply or, or what this Dr. Madrola was talking about is this is a diffuse systemic disease of deterioration of your microcirculation. That's exactly what happens with diabetics or pre-diabetics. And that's what's causing blood flow problems to your heart. Much more important than the blockages in your artery, which the body easily does its own bypass. So is are we now starting to look at the heart, I guess, maybe a little bit like we now look at the brain, where we used to think that the brain was a very uh, static thing and that if you know if a particular pathway got damaged, then you would lose that particular ability. But, but I guess now we understand that the brain is a lot more dynamic than that, that we have this neuroplasticity that it's able to adapt and evolve and to work around and actually the body is far more intelligent than we gave it credit for. You know, are we now sort of thinking the same line of thinking with the heart that maybe it was maybe it is actually more intelligent than we gave it credit for and it is able to adapt to those blockages much better than we realized yeah that's that's one way to look at it and that reminds me of there's not a whole lot that i learned in medical school that i still either remember or believe but the first day <laughs> of medical school i still remember the guy i don't know who, know who was gets up and says Always remember that the dumbest kidney is smarter than the smartest nephrologist, <laughs> kidney doctor. And if you think about it, even a failing kidney knows how to take what you've eaten as a carrot and absorb the good part and excrete the bad part, more or less. Mm. I mean, a normal kidney does that easily. Even a sick kidney uh, mostly does that. And yet, if you ask a nephrologist to do that, they have no clue. Uh, the best they can do is put you on dialysis, at which time you'll probably get dementia within no time. So they don't know how to do that. So I think what you're saying is the heart, like any organ in a human being, is much wiser and much more sophisticated 
and has much more of a redundant backup system than conventional medicine or science gives it credit for. And that's a fundamental problem with medicine because we're often intervening and trying to, quote, fix things that either don't need to be fixed or are fixed in the wrong way. Because if the body is going to do its own bypass and then you go and open up the vessel, you're going to collapse that collateral circulation and make the person more vulnerable to damage to their heart in the future. And again, amazingly, that's what the studies seem to show. No protection from future heart attacks from stents or bypasses. So if then stents aren't the answer, and if you know, uh, cholesterol-lowering medication maybe isn't the answer, uh, then what is the answer? I mean, for someone who feels like, you know, they've got maybe a genetic predisposition to heart disease, maybe they uh, they are, you know, heading in that direction, maybe they've already had a heart issue and they're wanting to try and reduce the risk of that happening again, you know, what can people do? Uh, well, <laughs> the first thing I would do is get my book and read it. Um, that may sound self-serving. <laughs> But I, I outline an entire strategy to do just that. So the first thing is to eat a truly heart-healthy diet, which is, you know, I, I think you're a, a fan of the paleo approach. And it's similar to that, which means good fats, modest protein, lots of vegetables, lowish carbohydrates. So that's the first thing. Yeah. Second of all, to do movement or some people call exercise uh, in, in a way that strengthens your heart and improves the microcirculation. There's also a very interesting technique called EECP. That's like Eddie, Eddie, Cat, Paul, which is a essentially passive exercise. So if you're a heart patient and you can't do strength training and can't really get yourself in shape, you can do six weeks where they, uh, sorry, seven weeks where they essentially put balloons on your leg, sync it up to the EKG and squeeze the blood up to your heart, which will drive angiogenesis in your heart and give you a new capillary circulation. And in the United States, over 80% of the people with uh, angina get uh, relief for up to seven years from just doing that, that simple sort of pneumatic strategy. So that's the second. And then I outline in my book, there's a, a heart medicine called strophanthus, which has an active ingredient called wabaine. And it's a essentially a bioidentical hormone in a plant form. And it does three things. One is it supports the parasympathetic nervous system. Two, it improves the microcirculation. And three, and probably most importantly, it converts lactic acid into pyruvate, which then breaks the cycle because pyruvate is a food, not a poison. And it completely changes the course of angina and unstable angina and MI uh, heart attack prevention. So those are the three biggest areas or four, diet, exercise, um, EECP when indicated, and strophanthus. 
And so, if people want to try and take this sort of approach, uh, Dr. Thomas, I mean, obviously they've they've got to be uh, you know mindful. You know, we're obviously not all, definitely not allowed to, and wouldn't want to encourage people to uh, just go straight off of their medications or to um, you know to do any of this without consulting with their doctor. Um, but obviously. You know, if you want to take this sort of approach, then finding the right kind of doctor is going to be very important. You know, someone who is open to some of these more alternative approaches. Uh, do you have any recommendations for people about, uh, you know, about half our audience is in Australia, about half is in America. So, you know, in each of those locations, how they can go about finding a doctor who might be open to helping them with these sort of solutions. Uh, so my first thought when I hear that is uh, my <clears throat> Amy, who is about three-year-old grandson, Ben, used to say, Good yuck. Um, so I, I don't know if that's a good enough answer, but um, I mean, the fact of the matter is there's very few cardiologists or internists who are really aware of, of, of this issue and how to treat it in a different way. In fact, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book, because besides these no-fat vegan diets, which in my opinion uh, don't work in the long run, um, there's very little out there in a kind of holistic alternative, if you will, way of treating heart disease. And that's why we set up a program with Strophanthus where we don't actually sell it to patients. We only sell it through healthcare practitioners and only after they have, you know, done a webinar of, you know, a free 15 minute webinar with me so I can tell them how to use this medicine. Um, and so the purpose of that was to do exactly that, where we then have a community of practitioners, hopefully all over the world, uh, who know how to use it, who've read my book. I mean, I'm not trying to say I'm the only answer here, but, um, you know, I have an answer. And so they know how to use Trophanthus, they know where to get it, and they know how to do this. So that's what I'm trying to do. And, of course, I'm just a small pebble in this huge sea. Uh, so, uh, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I mean, people can look on our website, humanheartcosmicheart.com, and there's a list of practitioners who have agreed to be listed there who, who know how to do this. And they've all talked to me and, uh, you know, they're all giving me feedback and sending me case studies and we're trying to publish them and, you know, do this properly. So I think I'm doing my part, but I don't know anybody in Australia. And so I don't know what you people should do. Get my book, show it to them. I hear most people when they show it to their cardiologist, the cardiologist refuses to look at it or read it. And I don't know what to say at that point. <laughs> Well, yeah, I think if you're in Australia, um, you know, looking up some of the associations like perhaps ACNEM, the Australasian College of Nutritional and Environmental Medicine, uh, or perhaps going to somewhere like the Mind Foundation, which is mindd.org, um, you know, associations like that that do have some more uh, integrative uh, doctors who are more open to some alternative approaches might be a good spot to start. Uh, but obviously also uh, heading to uh, Tom's website, uh, his practice website is fourfoldhealing.com, but also, as he said, humanheartcosmicheart.com, um, and you can find out a whole bunch more information there as well. So, uh, Tom, thanks for coming back on the show again. It was an absolute pleasure, and uh, 
certainly an eye-opener for me and I'm sure many people listening in. Thank you. And we'll talk ev- again sometime. Thanks, mate. Well, for everyone else, join our conversation on Facebook. Let us know what you think of this episode. Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. Join our newsletter list at thatpaleoshow.com and let's help grow the paleo tribe worldwide. Join us next week on That Paleo Show. Health IQ are not just an insurer. They're a life insurance agency. They take the customer through the journey from when they submit their interest to starting an application, going through the underwriting and to enforcing the policy as well. The policy is underwritten by one of their top partners who is an insurer. So if you're in the US, see if you qualify and get your free quote today at healthiq.com forward slash paleo or mention the code paleo when you talk to your Health IQ agent. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.